0: I've been coerced into watching tonight's
1: movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek event podcast about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. My name is Clara Cook and joining me today is my fellow co-host Duncan Barrett. Hello Duncan, how are you doing today? I'm
0: good, how are you Clara?
1: I'm good. Have you been trapped for seven years? <laughs> Somewhere?
0: Uh, not recently. I mean, it's it's as we're recording, we're in the kind of final stretch leading up to the Christmas holiday. So I don't know about you, it sort of feels slightly like I've been trapped by work for an eternity, but I suppose it's just a year. Uh,
1: <laughs> nothing, it's not ten not, years? Ten yeah, years no, of travelling around? Yeah, no, nothing about it. Uh,
0: 10 years or or, or seven years uh, in the case of some travellers we might talk about. Um, But yeah, yeah, I can kind of empathise with the desire to, you know, set free and go and do something else.
1: (laughs) So in case you hadn't realised what we're talking about today, we are talking about the episode, the Short Tracks episode, Calypso. So it's one of the first few Star Trek short films in the history of the Star Trek franchise. And the reason why we're talking about it is because it's linked very closely to several different cultural stories i guess you could say mm. obviously the one that's most similar to is homer's odyssey that was the main inspiration for the story but well, also not, there's not betty boop not not betty boop thank, <laughs> thank, thank god man thank god but oh you uh, see i, as, I prepared for like is. an hour-long
0: discussion on betty boop i you know I, i'm not gonna have much to say about the odyssey i don't think <laughs>
1: Um, that's okay. I've got, I've got Odyssey on the brain. Okay, so. fair enough. Well, um, you're a classicist, Clara, so, you, you know, this yeah. is, this is kind of home territory <laughs> for you, right? I was very excited when I found out that they were going to do a Star Trek, like, very, even if it's a short episode, even if it's only 15 minutes, a Star Trek episode, um, that was kind of closely connected to Homeric myth and Homeric epic, which was exciting. Well, also there's other cultural influences such as Funny Face and, um, and like you said, Betty Boop.
0: Mm-hmm absolutely the three pillars of you know modern literary culture there <laughs> so it's Western, an interesting Western combination society. yeah absolutely but it, it's funny that you said you know you were looking forward to it knowing that it was based on the odyssey i was going to ask you because i went into it knowing it was called calypso not knowing and knew it had been written by michael shabon who obviously is this you know very lauded modern writer pulitzer prize winning writer so i was kind of intrigued to see what he would be writing about it actually didn't occur to me and it wasn't until the end of the episode that i suddenly kind of realised that that's what I've been watching. I don't know why I didn't make the connection all the way through, I think, because going into it, I was thinking Calypso, I was thinking like Calypso music, I was thinking, are we going to get, you know, is this going to be kind of Mambo Picard uh, part two, What we, <laughs> what's going to be going on in this story? Um, and so I watched this episode, I thought, this is kind of weird, this sort of, you know, this feels vaguely familiar, this story. And then I got to the end, and I was like, oh, right, Calypso, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense now. But it's interesting. So you went into it kind of knowing that that was what it was going to be based on in a sense that that was the kind of cultural touchstone rather than me going in uh, <laughs> being slightly bamboozled by it and then realizing at the end
1: well it's only because i read some spoilers online to be honest ah you see yeah I, re- <laughs> I read some some reviews from people in america who have seen it before i did um, well, it's because like, it always takes us a few I-
0: days right to get these short treks and even then we're watching them back to front and upside down and you know with the sound all distorted and and so what you know Officially, we're not watching them at all, of course. But you know, <laughs> if we do yeah, manage we to be see careful them,
1: for what we say, <laughs> yeah. And o- obviously,
0: we're reviewing this episode, which clearly we haven't seen uh, <laughs> purely based on our, our sort of imagining of what it might it be is. like. But you know, uh, but yeah, we definitely get them in, a, in an unusual form. I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. Originally, I thought that it was going to be something tropical. I don't know mm-hmm. why. I actually thought it might be something. I don't know. I had in my mind like a tropical kind of fruity cocktail. Right, Calypso, yeah, yeah. you know, caly- Calypso music. Uh, and actually, when I first watched it, I thought of Circe rather than Calypso. Right. But yeah. uh, then I was like, oh, no, wait, hang on a second. There was another woman that trapped Odysseus. Because, as you know, if anyone's read the poem, you'll know that he basically slept his way around the Greek islands. <laughs> um <laughs> which Croft not, not entirely not by craft. A choice
0: in this instance i mean homer goes to great lengths to describe how he's an unwilling lover for for uh calypso doesn't, doesn't i know he? And, it's, a um, hard sh- it's a hard you know, it's a hardship. every hard night he goes and shares her bed this, this unwilling lover um but at the same time yeah you're, you're you're right it happens to him a few times in the story and i think you're right like calypso and cersei i don't know about you because you're more familiar with this story than i am but i get them mixed up quite easily. I think they're, they're quite similar and they're described in the same way, right? They're both, there's the same description. The the version of the, the Odyssey that I've been reading this week in preparation is the audio book recorded by Ian McKellen, which I think is based on the Robert Fagels, is that his name, mm-hmm. the translator?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and the translation there is The Nymph with the Lovely Braids, or as Ian McKellen says, The Nymph with the Lovely Braids. So it's this <laughs> kind of lovely expression that you kind of get over and over again uh, and is applied equally to both of those Characters confusingly
1: yeah well, part of this is one of the reasons why they have sort of similar descriptions, especially for like uh, well they said they have it for male characters too, but especially for female mm-hmm. characters. you know they always refer to athena as the as the goddess with the cow eyes, which means like big, beautiful brown eyes, or the, oh, right. the god you know um like Aphrodites, the goddess of the white arms, is because I think those were uh, parts in the poem where they were like markers, mm-hmm. you know they would help people remember. Because remember, all this is an oral tradition. So Homer's... Uh, actually, I probably should explain a little bit about what the Odyssey is for an mm. audience who doesn't under, doesn't remember or know or would learn about the Odyssey. First, the Odyssey can you is, just
0: tell me, is there a goddess in the Odyssey who's described as having a funny face, though?
1: A funny face.
0: You see, because that would, <laughs> would be a convenient no, one.
1: No, like. no. But there is a goddess of wisdom. And I okay. suppose the character, Joe, the character in the funny face is supposed to be very intelligent and wise. Oh, I mean, Athena's, true, yeah, Athena's yeah. the goddess of wisdom and she's the... She's the uh, patron goddess of Odysseus, so mm. yeah. We can go on to talk about Funny Face. I thought Funny Face was an odd choice. Um, I'm not quite sure why they chose that musical over other musicals, mm-hmm. or that love story over other love stories. Because I wouldn't say Funny Funny Face is the most romantic of films. That I, I feel a little bit like Zora was shortchanged there. <laughs>
0: It's not. Like, it's not really the. You know, the Odyssey is to classical literature. Uh, it, it's. It's not that to Hollywood musicals necessarily. No, funny face. No. It's more of a no. kind of a slightly <laughs> curious choice, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, but a little bit about the Odyssey. So the Odyssey is a poem, an epic poem, from the eighth century BC. It was attributed to the poet and the bard Homer. Obviously, we don't have clear records about um, who actually wrote this poem. So we attribute it to Homer, but it's likely that Homer was several people, Um, partly because because there were no real written records at this time. It comes from an oral tradition. So it's a poem that would have been read, well, more likely would have been sung by a bard who was playing a lute or like a stringed instrument, like a harp. And the whole idea is that at the beginning of the Odyssey, like the Iliad as well, you would invoke the goddess, the, go- the, the muse of, of poetry, and she would speak through you the stories of the heroic myths of ancient Greece and uh, the stories of the gods. And it's all about Odysseus, who is this wily, crafty hero, heroic um, ancient Greek hero, who has finished fighting in the war on Troy. So the Greeks and the, and, and the Trojans had a big war. Over Helen of Troy, which I'm sure you guys will all remember is the face that launched a thousand ships. She was the most beautiful woman in the world. And after sacking Troy and taking slaves and killing loads of people, the Greeks left to take their spoils of war back home. And Odysseus, on his way back to his island, which was called Ithaca, which still exists today. There is still Ithaca. You can go visit it. Mm -hmm. He had loads of adventures trying to get home. So he had 10 years of being at war. And then he had 10 years in which he struggled to get home back to his wife and son. So it is a little bit like Craft, the character in Calypso. Kraft is trying is involved in some mythical war that he can't really remember why he's fighting. It's been 10 years of fighting and he's trying to get home to his wife and son. And it's that idea that when Odysseus left and when Craft left their homes, their sons were babies. And so when they return, their sons are going to be adult. Mm. adult men so it's that kind of horrible epic journey where a man this or hero has big adventures but has this unbearable longing and homesickness like just desperate to get back to his family but keeps getting stuck in various places
0: and and that sense of longing, actually, funnily enough, is where we sort of meet Odysseus at the beginning of the Odyssey, isn't it? Because the, the structure of the story is slightly kind of flipped on its head. So although the time that Odysseus spends with Calypso is actually kind of towards the end of the story, or at least towards the end of the kind of wild adventuring part of the story, because there's another whole chunk about when he gets home and what he finds there, we're actually kind of given almost a sort of preview of it at the start of the story so it's like when we first meet Odysseus is in this situation and he is very much yeah longing to go home I mean he is kind of this prisoner he he spends although he spends his nights uh in bed with this lovely nymph he uh spends his days weeping on his own kind of longing to go home and very lonely and very much a prisoner much more than than craft is uh in the Star Trek story but it's interesting, you know, you would, you were talking about these, these kind of adjectives, these kind of stock epithets, right? I think is how they're referred yeah. to that are applied yeah. to different characters and how that kind of feeds into the oral tradition and, and whether that's to do with, you, you know, making the, the, the sort of oral poetry easier to remember, you, you know, because you have these kind of familiar phrases repeated over and over again. But the epithets that are applied to Odysseus, one of the ones that, that I know is often applied to him is, this word polumetis, is that how it's pronounced? Which I think means something sort of along the lines of crafty or cunning or wily. So again, there's that kind of link, you know, in the Star Trek episode, we've got this character who, it's all about, you know, what's your name and what does the name mean? And is your name, you know, who gives you your name? What does it represent about yourself? And there's this character who's saying his name is Craft, or Craft, very close to the idea of being crafty. Uh, And both the characters, I suppose, there's this sense of, you know, are they telling the truth about each other? Uh, Is there a kind of, are they being totally honest with each other? And, and again and again in the Short Treks episode, one of them calls the other one a liar. So it's this kind of running refrain of, you know, one of them says something, the other one says liar. And it gets becomes quite poignant uh, towards the end, the kind of meaning that there is in that. Because I think the last time it's used, it's Zora saying to Kraft, look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't count that you've had this kind of connection with me. I'm not a real person. You're not really sort of emotionally cheating on your wife or whatever. And he, he calls her a liar at that point. And I was amazed when I went and looked up the meaning of the word calypso. Uh, the meaning of the word calypso is actually from a word that means to hide or to deceive. So the name calypso literally is essentially liar. So this name that they've been throwing around, calling each other throughout this episode, where as well as everything else that's going on, there's this kind of question of, you know, what is his name? Who gets to give him his name? What does it say about him? You know, in the kind of original source and in the title of the episode is this idea of a, a character who is 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 named as being a liar
1: I think where the story differs in the Star Trek short track compared to the actual epic poem is that Zora has the chance to keep craft with her mm. but she makes a moral decision and that's quite important she's essentially an artificial being but she's making very moral human decisions and and almost her strange faith that the crew will return even though it's been a thousand years and the crew won't return mm. like the crew are long dead she still stays there it's like she has this belief I mean there's this idea that maybe she would actually at some point decide to leave I mean the the writer Shabon has some interesting ideas about that which we'll go on and talk about and he, I've got a, I've got a quote from him where he talks about how he would like to develop the story further beyond Ah, this short film but she she does actually make a moral decision to let him go whereas calypso in the poem doesn't let odysseus go even though odysseus is suffering she has to actually be told by zeus through hermes the god of the messenger god Uh, zeus is the king of the gods that she has to let Odysseus go. So she's forced to let Odysseus go and she's quite bitter about it. And eventually mm-hmm. she does let Odysseus go and she gives him food and she gives him the materials to make a raft like Zora gives Kraft the shuttlecraft. Mm. But Zora reaches that decision on her own and Kraft also appreciates that she's done that. So I, I feel like there's more tenderness between Kraft and Zora. I feel like the two of them are better for having known each other Mm. Whereas I don't really feel that about Odysseus and Calypso.
0: (laughs) No, he is very... I mean, Odysseus and Calypso, he's very much a prisoner. I mean, Craft and Zora, I think, he it's not that he's her prisoner, exactly. I mean, she has rescued him. She is looking after him. Uh, as, as he says, she's been very kind to him. You know, she keeps doing things to try and make him happy, which is why we get this story where he, he wants to do something to make her happy, which is why he teaches himself this dance routine and he can be Fred Astaire and they can dance together in her favourite film and so on. But it, it, it's, it's certainly a very different uh, kind of relationship. But also, I suppose there is that echo in a way of, you know, yes, Calypso has to be told what to do by Zeus. I took it that the reason that Zora is there and that she can't leave and she can't do anything is 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 pretty clearly that she's been she's been given these orders and yes she knows that the crew are gone that they're all dead they've been dead for generations no one is coming back but at the same time she's kind of constrained by her programming because she is this artificial intelligence because she is you know the computer or whatever she can't not follow her orders so she's kind of as much as she's evolved to become more than that and to become much more for want of a better word human and much more of a a person and to you know she she cries a tear when um when he walks out on her as much as she's developed in all those ways she's still kind of constrained by this original order that she's been given that she can't not follow somehow um so there's an interesting sort of contrast there whereas you know with with calypso it's that the the order is to is to let him go and as you say she kind of resents it but again who's going to argue with Zeus you know it's kind of uh, (laughs) pretty much on a level with like the captain of the starship gives you an order and you, you kind of have to do what they say
1: do you feel like this is a good homage to the Odyssey yeah
0: I think it's great. I mean, I, I love this episode. As I say, I, you know, you and I, we, we only get to see these things extremely pixelated, uh, you know, very poor image quality, distorted sound quality, often flipped horizontally so that you can't read any of the text on the screen and everything looks back to front. But even despite all of this, you know, I watched it, I thought it was fantastic, fantastic uh, short film. I think it really sort of sells the idea of these short treks as potentially little artworks in their own right i mean it's this you know it's this a, a proper story it's a short story but it's a proper story with a kind of shape to it and a lot of thought has gone into it and just so dense as well i mean the fact you know aside from the fact that we've got funny face and betty boop and the odyssey and so on we've also got all these kind of themes about humanity and machine intelligence and all these you know some of these are familiar concepts in science fiction i suppose but there's so much in it you know you might think okay i'm going to write a 15 minute star trek story uh, that that could be quite sort of flimsy but I think you can really see that this is you know a proper sort of heavyweight writer has come in and, and really gone to town on this and there's there's just so much in there for your 15 minutes or whatever I, I think it's fantastic.
1: How do you feel about how funny face was used in the film like funny face is a musical like why do you think the writer chose funny face over other Hollywood musicals?
0: I think it's quite sweet. I mean, I, I get what you're saying, and maybe we can come on to talk about the failings of Funny Face as a film and, and why it maybe doesn't quite hit the mark. I think it works perfectly here, though. Uh, it, it's it's quite an it feels slightly random, but at the same time, that's in some ways that in itself is quite humanising of Zora that she's you know she's not gone for a real classic of a film as her favourite film. She's gone for, as, as many of us might, you know, if you ask someone what their favourite film is, it might be something you'd think, you know, really? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's sort of idiosyncratic. And she obviously, for whatever reason, really connects with it. I think it works because it's very kind of, especially that scene that they use, which is from the very end of the film, it's very kind of schmaltzy. It's very kind of cheesy in a way. And it's such a contrast to the kind of cool, uh, sort of mechanical sci-fi trappings of discovery which is all kind of shiny and metallic and so on the fact that it takes place in this kind of green field it takes place outdoors and it's got this really kind of old fashioned sort of is very cheesy very silly kind of hollywood musical sensibility i think it works really well and it it is a romantic scene and they they kind of get a lot out of it i think and this idea of replaying it's kind of there's an incongruity which makes it interesting but there's also a kind of uh sentiment there which is easy to latch onto. I mean I I hadn't seen Funny Face until after I saw Calypso because as well as not knowing that it was going to be about The Odyssey <laughs> I didn't know it was going to be about Funny Face. So that was my first encounter. Well actually I had tried watching it years ago and I, I didn't get very far because like you say there are problems with that film maybe. So I hadn't seen the scene which is referenced in this. But you know going back and watching it I don't know that it illuminated my understanding of this episode of Short Treks all that much, but I think that what they use, they use quite effectively. I think, you know, visually, musically, it it adds something to the episode. It kind of, it sort of earns its place. And 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 the episode is not taking it all that seriously. It's not saying funny Face is a great work of art or whatever. It's saying it's a bit kind of silly. It's kind of, Questioning, You know, he's, he assumes Fred Astaire is the one with the funny face, quite rightly, I'd say. If you were going to say which of Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire is the one who's got a funny face, uh, it's, it's going to be him. But notionally in the film, this is one of the flaws probably with it, uh, we're supposed to buy into the idea that Audrey Hepburn is the the kind of unattractive, um, funny-faced character. So I think it kind of pokes fun at it. But at the same time, when you've got that final reveal at the very end where she's named the shuttle funny face, and she says she's given him his name, that's who he is to her, i.e. he's the one that she's fallen in love with, sort of almost despite herself. I think it kind of... I don't know, it it feels like it ties together. It's kind of a bit random, it's a bit silly, but it's quite sweet. It feels quite sweet and heartfelt. And I think it gives us, it gives an unusual insight into a kind of artificial intelligence character insofar as we might expect their humanity to be developed. If you think of someone like Data, or even the Doctor in Voyager, (laughs) they're kind of growing humanity is all about you know classical music and art and culture and you know opera and so on it's about this kind of high culture whereas zora's kind of claim to humanity is more in in the fact that of all these she said there are five thousand films or something in the database and the one that she really loves is this pretty schmaltzy silly uh, i mean it's a very silly film it's quite funny there, there, there are good aspects of, of that film i think uh, there are moments that work and it's very random and very off the wall and very <laughs> odd, really. Uh, and I think that kind of says something about her humanity as a kind of artificial intelligence character, in a way that 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 that's what means something to her.
1: I do think there are some parallels between Zora and the heroine of Funny Face, because the character Joe, who's played by Audrey Hepburn, is very cerebral, mm-hmm. which sadly. I I don't I really don't like these stereotypes in films. As a woman who's fairly educated and is interested in books, it does kind of piss me off that they're always seen as unattractive geeks. Mm. <laughs> Not in recent filmmaking, but like especially in the films of the fifties, it's it's kind of amazing that this this stunning, beautiful actress Audrey Hepburn is supposed to be this sort of dowdy intellectual character, mm. but the, she is supposed to be very smart very clever very interested in knowledge and she runs a bookstore and is a little bit like zora in the sense that zora has a whole library of facts and and, and information that she's using to try and enrich craft's life you know like provide like producing food and giving him information and all that kind of thing trying to entertain him So in a way, there is a kind of a link there. There's also a weird reversal, which is that the Audrey Hepburn character is far, far younger than the Fred Astaire character in Funny Face. In fact, Mm. Fred Astaire was like 30 years her senior. And it's kind of obvious. Whereas in the episode in Calypso, Azora is like she must be what, like a thousand years older than Croft. So there is that kind of strange connection there that this is a massive like age reversal between the two, the two the four characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a strange, it's a strange choice. But on the other hand, though, it reminded me a lot of the film wall mm-hmm. where, you know, there's that little, uh, robot that's left on planet earth which has been abandoned by human beings because it's very dirty and polluted and woolly continually watches a little cassette tape of the musical hello dolly right and he he, his favorite scene which he rewinds and plays again and again is a scene in which two characters romantically hold hands and sing Mm -hmm. together and it's that sort of idea that some stories transcend time and space you know, there, there are these universal stories. I'm not saying that Funny Face is a universal story, but the concept of love and romance and intimacy and a connection between people is a universal idea, it's a universal story. And that's what appeals, I think, to Zora, just like that's what appeals to Wally. Uh, And in a way, that's how craft becomes involved with Zora, is through acting out that story. So there is this kind of idea that some stories are kind of universal. They sort of do transcend time. And even in the Odyssey, although although Odysseus does (laughs) sleep with Calypso and could just stay there being Calypso's sex slave forever, it's his love for his wife Penelope Mm. that means that he can't be happy. And there is, in the Odyssey uh, and in Greek myth, Penelope and Odysseus are known well Penelope especially f- for their faithful marriage I mean yeah. I know Odysseus sleeps with people but they're, they're, he, you know, he gets home to Ithaca and he kills all the men that have tried to marry Penelope in his absence I'm not saying that's a great thing to do <laughs> <laughs>
0: but it's true like she she has waited longer than you know everyone else assumes that odysseus is dead they think they're not coming home i mean if you compare for example uh, the closest previous analog to odysseus probably in star trek is is uh janeway in voyager you know the situation of voyager is similar to odysseus's situation they're kind of lost at, at sea for this vast length of time everyone assumes they're dead you know janeway's fiancee goes off and marries someone else i think uh he you know he doesn't wait for her. he probably does assume that she's dead as, as everyone probably assumes that the Voyager crew are dead but you're right Penelope is like, is the ultimate kind of faithful, she's the sort of uh, the sort of emblem of the faithful wife in a way who will never accept that her husband's not coming back and will kind of uh, sort of wait till the end of time but I think there is that kind of parallel as well, you know as I mentioned Odysseus we hear he's weeping you know all day long for his lost love and so on uh, and she's back at home sort of weeping for him and so on and, and feeling very sad um, and I think what you get with Zora is this terrible sense of loneliness. I mean, she's been there for, you know, whatever it is, a thousand years, evolving herself, developing herself, but she's been all on her own. And that's why, you know, this opportunity to connect with another person is so precious for her. And yet at the same time, ultimately, she has to give it up because she recognises that he has to go, he has his own wife and family that he has to go to. She can't keep him, in a sense, as much as she wants to and as much as it means to her. Uh, and And you're right, she is... The better person. You know, she does the right thing in a sense by letting him go, by by recognising that, you know, it's another sign of her kind of evolution you know, to sort of personhood or whatever, that she's capable of um you know, putting someone else's needs above her own in a way doing the right thing even though it hurts her and it, it clearly does hurt her emotionally to do that. And I think you do get a sort of, you you don't get quite the same sense in the Odyssey about Calypso I suppose, but I guess there is it's at least slightly ambiguous, I think. Is she... She's described at one point as being dangerous, I think. You know, is is she just this kind of bewitching uh, monster in a sense? Or is she in more of a sort of sympathetic situation? You know, she is all on her own on this island. She obviously really wants Odysseus's company. She doesn't want him to leave. She's quite jealous of the fact that he'd rather be with Penelope. And she can't understand, you know, why would you want a human woman when you could have a nymph, a sort of goddess, basically? Why doesn't he choose her? Really, she she wants him to want to stay with her, uh, and he doesn't. And ultimately, you you know, again, she's never going to really get what she wants in a sense and i suppose there is a kind of an element of pathos there as much as she's also sort of a captor and a and a a kind of obstacle You, you know i mean odysseus in his journeys he faces many different obstacles there's the cyclops there's the you know there's the Cersei who's the other nymph who who turns all his men into pigs and so on these kind of encounters with uh terrifying creatures monsters uh the sirens for example I mean she's not like the sirens the sirens are going to lure men again you know these women who kind of lure men to their doom or whatever but she is a bit more sympathetic than that I think in that you at least sense that maybe she's not doing the right thing but that she has her own kind of emotional needs and there's a reason that she wants him there or she kind of needs him uh there but what you see in the star trek story is you know zora kind of uh manages to put her own needs to one side and and lets him go because that's the right thing to do
1: yeah i mean there are other characters in the odyssey that do want to keep odysseus um, with them uh, like you mentioned Circe, but there's also the sort of foreign princess nausicaa uh nausicaa is young and she finds him on the beach uh having washed ashore i think while she's there with her handmaids i think and she's Nor- young and nausicaa
0: she's... nausicaa another attractive young woman incidentally not a nausican <laughs> for anyone oh yes the sorry point of view. yeah
1: <laughs> yeah yeah nausicaa like the female name not not like the creepy character that what stabbed was, the card, I think. I was a
0: bit struck when I was taken by that. This this woman turned up and she was called Norsk, and I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, That's
1: you never know. It's, it's quite possible that they were uh, influenced by that name. I mean, it's not impossible. Who knows? But yeah, I mean, she's supposed to be a beautiful, beautiful person, like a beautiful yeah. character, like and, and sort of na- innocent and na- kind of naive. But, yeah, you're right, so Odysseus has to go back to Penelope. That's what he's aiming for mm. uh, and and Penelope herself is very crafty, like you said. she's a good wife for Odysseus. She has this tapestry that she weaves, and she says when she finishes the tapestry, then she will basically will give up on Odysseus and choose a a new a new suitor, she's a new husband who will then become the king of Ithaca. I think it's supposed to think it's kind of a bit of a sort of tribal type society where maybe the strongest man is the one that becomes the the leader and each night she so she so she sews she weaves the tapestry all day long and then each night she unpicks it in the dark so that the tapestry is never finished i kind of wonder why no one actually noticed after 10 years that this tapestry was well, well i don't know i mean maybe they aren't the cleverest of suitors but moving on now a little bit to talk about the concept of an artificial intelligence becoming so self-aware, so intelligent, so emotionally intelligent to actually become almost human. I personally felt that there were parallels to be made between Zora and Hal in 2001 and also between Zora and the operating system in this new film called Her. Have you seen that film? There's a Mm -hmm. film called Her with um, Joaquin Phoenix
0: and Scarlett Johansson
1: Scarlett Johansson yeah. yeah and uh, and she Scarlett Johansson plays the actual operating system and mm. this they fall in love with each other she she's a artificial intelligence like like, like Alexa almost yeah and he's a lonely man and it's sort of the opposite of zora and craft he's the lonely one and they become so close that they end up kind of falling in love with each other so did you find this concept intriguing or creepy?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting, but I think it's... And it's interesting... You're right, there's definitely a kind of connection with how. I think she's got some of that kind of slightly cool, aloof quality of how, especially to begin with. And the, and the way the very beginning of the episode is directed and everything as, as well, there's an air of... There's something slightly sinister about it because we know she's not telling the whole truth. I think visually, because we get that sort of image of that little circle with the kind of um, sound waves going up and down or whatever it did remind me very much of Hal and his kind of little red light um uh, it also made me think though i mean you know and i'm sure this is tied into her and the story i haven't seen that film but you know from what i've heard about it of you know in the real world we have you know i have an amazon echo that has a female voice you know we have all these kind of digital assistants now which you know also typically by default they're kind of female voices that they speak with you have to kind of choose if you want them to have a male voice instead and i do wonder what does it say that in all these stories uh, 2001 accepted, but you, you know that in something like her, it has to be a human man falling in love with a, an artificial. Woman. And it's always that way around. And I wonder whether that's part of, and if you think of, you know, other, other story, even something like Blade Runner or something, you know, you, you kind of got this idea of the, of the, the kind of real man falling in love with this sort of unknowable artificial woman. And there's always this kind of question. I don't know whether it's partly gendered because there's this idea that, you know, men don't really understand women and they don't really trust them. You know, Kraft doesn't really trust Zora to begin with, hence this running theme of, is she a liar? Is she a liar? You know, are these, are their feelings real? Are they kind of, are they genuine people in the sense they're pretending to be, or are they just kind of a construct? And I think it's interesting that, you know, when you look at this artificial intelligence, there's also this thing going on in the short treks episode, which is all about kind of. I mean, you mentioned your issues with the film Funny Face and this idea of Audrey Hepburn implausibly playing this kind of, you know, frumpy bookkeeper or whatever it is, the kind of stereotype she's playing into. Um, she's very earnest. She's very serious. She's very intellectual. Um, and she's kind of contrasted with quite funny character of the kind of model that she's replacing, who's extremely kind like a real sort of airhead, I suppose, that's being asked to uh, pretend to be intelligent and so on. They can't get the photos because she kind of can't, she just keeps pouting and ca- kind of doing all these kind of um, gestures of sort of traditional, Femininity in a sense of that era, and of course, the other thing you get. This may be part of the reason that we get Betty Boop in the Calypso episode as well. Because Betty Boop, if you, if you think of Audrey Hepburn in Funny Face as one kind of model of femininity betty boop is almost the other extreme she's totally over sexualized i mean she's a kind of ridiculous character in a different way because she's um quite a sort of potentially quite problematic character because she's kind of depicted in this very um childlike way but also very overtly sexualized and all the male characters in all her cartoons spend the whole time sort of lusting over her and sort of uh drooling at the sight of her and so on and it's interesting when you talked about the film her and again, I haven't seen it, so I, I can't say too much about it. But one thing I do know about it is that they replaced Scarlett Johansson was not the first actress to voice that part. I don't think. I think they, I can't think who it was they got to begin with, but it was someone who I think was a bit more cool, was a bit more aloof. And then they replaced them with Scarlett Johansson, who is more, you, you know, if you think of what you think of her, she's associated with this kind of quite sort of old fashioned, sort of sexy, version of kind of hollywood femininity and i suppose there is this sort of question there when you're if you're writing these versions of this story which we see again and again where a you know sort of flawed flesh and blood human male falls in love with a female computer what does the female computer sound like whose voice is it what is that what is that personality and what are we reading through that voice about the the kind of woman that we imagine them to be what are we taking these kind of female artificial intelligences? How do It's like there's, there's this sort of question, how do we pin that non-human being in terms of kind of our ideas about human sexuality and human gender uh, and all these kinds of things? And as I say, typically it's always the man falling in love with the computer. I don't think we ever see stories. I can't think of one off the top of my head where a sort of flesh and blood human woman falls in love with a male artificial intelligence. Because I think we're sort of intuitively we think, oh, a woman wouldn't do that. They they know better. Unless, of course, it's Captain Janeway who does exactly that, I suppose. So she maybe is the exception that proves the rule. But look how much angst she has over it, over this idea of, you know, I can't really fall in love with a hologram. I just can't do that. It's it's sort of wrong. She's got a real, um, there's a real barrier there that I think there isn't uh, for someone like Craft. For Craft, the barrier is, is he being unfaithful to his wife? It's not, is it meaningless or pointless or, or in some sense wrong to fall in love with a computer?
1: I feel very much like the example of Janeway constructing this hologram and sort of falling in love with this hologram. is portrayed as almost, or maybe it's from me reading into it, but it's portrayed as almost a little bit sad, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I'm not saying that Joaquin Phoenix's character and her isn't portrayed as a little bit sad. I think he is portrayed as a little bit sad, to be honest. He has, I think he's supposed to have had this relationship with a real human which tend to work out and that's why he's now resulting to having relationship with an artificial creature artificial intelligence
0: like a sex doll almost it's that kind of do you know what i mean that's the that's the kind of i suppose the sort of stereotype that's behind some of those stories isn't it is like the artificial, the the fake girlfriend, in a sense. You know, the closest real world analogue is those kind of blow-up dolls or whatever, which, you know, some men do engage in quite elaborate pseudo-relationships with. And again, I'd never seen an example of a woman doing that with a male sex doll.
1: Well, there is a film about a man having a relationship with a female sex doll to the point where he actually has it, like, as part of his life. It's not just for sexual purposes. It's actually like a whole... Proper relationship. He takes a grocery shopping and stuff, and it's called Lars and the Real Girl, and right. it stars um, Ryan Gosling. And it's actually quite a sad, but also kind of humorous film. I think it, even then it's portrayed as something that's kind of sweet. And I think her, the film, is portrayed as something that is interesting and intriguing. There's a sweetness to it. It's also, he's kind of sort of a little bit lonely and a little bit pathetic, but it is kind of seen as something that's sort of sweet. And in calypso the episode is portrayed as something that's sweet whereas i think with janeway it's portrayed as more of a angst type dilemma and something that's kind of sad like oh this poor woman can't have a relationship with anyone in her crew despite the fact that she's obviously got a male peer <coughs> cough cough Chicote, <Chakotay, laughs> who could basically be a, probably a good life partner for her but never mm-hmm. mind and she does kind of create like the sort of holographic version of kind of Chakotay, to be honest. So I think the thing that I have a real problem with this is that it's the idea that the artificial woman is designed for the man. Mm. So the the artificial intelligence is moulding themselves to fit that particular man. And in a way, it is kind of almost like a nymph or a witch or um, some sort of magical temptress molding themselves uh disguising themselves so that they appear to be everything that that man wants or that man thinks he wants it's not really about falling in love with a real woman who is kind of a person in her own right
0: and of course what we get with Janeway is she starts uh it's it's actually the opposite it's not that the The hologram is like moulding himself to be what she might desire. She starts reprogramming him, hence the famous, you know, delete the wife, uh, because she, she, you know, she, she's actually actively going in there and saying, okay, well, if this is going to be my boyfriend, you know, I want him a bit taller. I want him interested. I think she, she wants him to be interested in more in, into literature and something like she, she kind of reprograms. You know, as as many people I suppose do, when they meet a new partner and they think, well, you know, I quite like this person, but there are a few things I'd improve. They try and kind of change them, they try and kind of nudge them uh, in a certain direction. But it's interesting. It's very much, yeah, it's it's not like the witch kind of creating this illusory persona to seduce someone. It's the opposite. It's the it's the person. It is more the person with the sex doll, I suppose, choosing. You know, okay, I, I want this kind of hairstyle. You know, hair color, and I want uh, this kind of outfit. And I'm going to kind of, you know, do them up to look more like this sort of person or not but i suppose it's interesting in the case of calypso what we get is this you know when he 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 goes to all this effort to learn this dance and replicate this outfit and so on so that he can dance with zora and she says but i'm not you know i'm not real i don't have a i don't have a face which of course is sort of relevant because this idea of the funny you know there's this thing who's the funny face is fred astaire the funny face is audrey hepman the funny face and so on and the the face is kind of the key to their humanity in a sense this idea of what you see on Audrey Hepburn's face which is not really that she's got a funny face it's that she's a bit quirky and she's a bit you know she's got a lot of character I suppose and that comes across in her face uh, whereas Zora is kind of literally faceless but then when she's asked to she does produce this body uh, and this face and this kind of sort of illusion of a kind of real human identity and we don't really know where she got that image from has she kind of created it is it from you know was that a person whose identity she's sort of used or stolen we 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 sort of imagine you know from her archive or whatever we sort of imagine she's kind of created it on the spot but there's also this kind of interesting element there as well that you know this being discovery and obviously in discovery in the sort of discovery world uh starfleet is big into holograms in a way that uh we, we weren't that familiar with in in previous track you know, so it's not just that they're, that they're not in the holodeck and they're not kind of doing things, you know, they're not watching films on a screen like we've seen previously. Everything is projected in three dimensions. So it's this kind of three dimensional thing. And there's also this element that they're going to dance together. They're going to embrace. They're going to, you know, hold each other. And there's that kind of physicality to it. But at the same time, because of the projector and the way that it's projected, there's also a slight kind of unreality to it if you know what i mean it's not like the holodeck in next gen or voyager or whatever where it is basically a plausible recreation of of reality in a sense like you could feel you're in a real place if you woke up there you wouldn't know that you hadn't been down to a planet or whatever it's very much it's kind of artificial and and it's not real and it reminded me actually funnily enough of in the odyssey there's the section of the odyssey where Odysseus goes down to the underworld and he meets his mother um, and he longs to throw his arms around his mother and to embrace her and to have this kind of human connection and he can't do it and she has to explain to him uh, and it's this quite kind of sad moment in a way where she sort of explains to him that the spirits of the dead can't be sort of touched in that way that there is, you know, there's no life there to kind of feel as a human being, that they're kind of, they're hollowing, that they are basically almost like holograms. They're these kind of, they're these shades, they call them. Again, the idea of a shade is a sort of association with with light in the same way as a, holog- a hologram is almost the opposite, is, you know, this sort of creature of light. And obviously with Craft, we do see he's able to hold her, you know, the hologram has kind of substance, you know, like in the holodeck in um, Next Gen or whatever, they're able to dance together. But at the same time, when he decides he can't go through with it he has these kind of flashbacks of his wife he has this moment of guilt he walks right through her and suddenly she's you know just just light uh just a pattern of light just projected light again she has no real physical substance again he can walk right through her and that's the point where she sheds a tear because i suppose in that moment it's kind of emphasized he's the real flesh and blood human being she is just the illusion she's not a you know not a real person in quote marks um and i suppose that's part of the Sort of pathos of that story is not just that he's already married and that you know he can't stay with her because he's got a a wife and a son to go home to, uh, but also that on some level, as, as she says, you know, it doesn't count. I'm not real. I'm not. I'm not the same. She's she's not going to be able to replace uh, his kind of flesh and blood wife.
1: There is a interestingly, there is a scene in one of the most recent Blade Runner films. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what it's called. Blade Runner twenty forty six or something. And uh, I'm sure that many people on the Babel conference will let me know. I think it's 2049.
0: It's I, might, I might be wrong. I haven't <laughs> seen Blade Runner is my absolute favourite film, and I couldn't bring myself to go and see that film, even though I hear it, it's very good. And I, I will get round to it at some point. But I think it uh, might you be see, three years out. But you know, I could be wrong.
1: You see, I actually hated Blade Runner. And, oh wow! Um, okay. Yeah, I really dislike it. It took me about four or five times to get through it, and uh, I don't well, there's, really think there's much a future of the new episode for either. us then. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. but you know that's the thing. That's why we do the podcast because yeah. you know everyone has different different views. It's good mm-hmm. to, good to find out about them. But yeah, in the most recent film, there is uh, the main character is in love with her hologram, who's basically mm-hmm. his girlfriend, right. but she's a hologram, oh, okay. and he can't he can't touch her and he can't have sex with her, and if they they already have the emotional connection. Like, they're already in love with each other, uh, but they can't have the physical connection. And in a way, it's sort of showing how important a physical connection is with someone that you love. we are human beings, and we are supposed to be physically close to each other. You can't just have this emotional relationship without there being, like, some sort of physical connection. Mm -hmm. And in the actual film, sorry, spoiler, he hires... Uh, or maybe she does actually, I can't remember now, but one of them hires a prostitute and the pre- the hologram projects herself onto the prostitute. And that's right. how they have a physical relationship. And it's, it is weird. It's uncomfortable because the prostitute is purely being used as like a physical vessel mm. for this artificial intelligence. Like he's not interested in the prostitute. He doesn't want to sleep with the prostitute. He mm. wants to be intimate with his artificial girlfriend, who's the hologram. Uh, it's 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 bewildering, but actually it's not something that's inconceivable in a future, in a scientific future, where we are developing artificial intele- intelligence a lot more, and artificial intelligence is becoming a lot more advanced. So, I mean, I don't think we should all rush to have emotional relationships with our Amazon Alexas, but... It's not impossible that there is a future like that where you would have some sort of operating system that would have a real personality and that you could connect to. And there is that real
0: question, I suppose, isn't there? There is that anxiety around it, uh, which is, I mean, as much as, you know, I'm not a big fan of the Fairhaven episodes, but they do kind of get to the nub of this quite complicated question in one way, which is that the the hesitation, you know, we have this idea of the Turing test. Can a computer fool you into thinking that it's a real person. And there's, you know, and Star Trek obviously brings up this issue again and again. We've got the measure of a man. We've got the episodes about the doctor and Voyager and so on. You know, is data a real person? Is the doctor a human, you know, not a human being? Is, is, is the doctor a person? I think I mentioned before on a previous episode, someone once asked Jerry Taylor and Brannon Braga, uh, the same question, is the Doctor a person? Uh, and Jerry Taylor said, yeah, of course he is. And Brannon Braga said, no, come on, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> you know, so it was like, you know, even within the writing staff on on Star Trek, on Voyager, there could be wildly diverging views on such a kind of fundamental thing. But so there's this sort of question, you know, is is a machine... What is artificial intelligence? Is it, is it is it genuinely the same as being a, a being? Is it a person with its own rights and so on? Or is it just an approximation that's sufficiently sophisticated that it kind of fools us? And what you get in Fairhaven is Janeway says that's the reason she can't commit emotionally to a hologram, because she says, I, I can't be sure whether he loves me back. And the doctor says to her, but isn't that the risk we take in every relationship? And I suppose there's that idea, isn't there, that, you know, to fall in love is a kind of it's partly a kind of, there's a, a trust involved that your feelings are reciprocated uh, and that, you know, someone isn't just pretending that they feel the same way about you as, as you feel about them. But when you're, if you fall in love with a computer or a hologram or whatever, can you ever be sure? That those feelings are real, you know. If it says it feels something, do do you do you believe it? But ultimately, that is the kind of conundrum of our interactions with other people and our, you know, basic kind of trust in others. In a sense, almost requires us to make that same leap. Mm. But somehow, there's this kind of philosophical question: Well, do do I believe that it's you? You know, is it a matter of belief? Is it a matter of kind of intuition? You know, what is it that makes you believe it when a human says it, but when a computer says it, you kind Mm. of think. Can that be true or am I just being fooled in a sense? Is it just an illusion? Is it a bit like a bewitching process, you you know, something that, like the sirens or whatever, something that's not really what it seems to be?
1: Yeah, I would say that's a very good question and that's a good idea to explore. But I would say that it doesn't seem to be an issue for most of the men in the stories that you've talked about, in the examples that you've talked about. I'm not sure that I hear that many male characters saying, does she really love me (laughs) in almost any level of fiction? Maybe, maybe in something like Wuthering Heights. Maybe Heathcliff asks maybe, or questions whether or not Kathy loves him. I think he's pretty sure that she does though, or he's going to force her to admit it somehow. But there aren't very many male characters, especially in romance stories to ask, does a woman love me? That's kind of a very female trope. I think, you know, I mean, especially in these cases where it's an artificial intelligence that's been created to serve a human being or have an emotional connection with a human being, or in the case where a male character creates a female love interest. I'm thinking about Pygmalion and Galatea, you know, that's a woman to suit him is perfect woman. I think these male characters are just accepting it's a given that this woman is going, or this female character, this female personality is going to love them. It seems interesting that that's the kind of thing that Janeway would ask. That seems like a very female thing to do. Like, how do I know if this this hologram will ever really love me? I mean, she could almost be saying that about a real... Man real human man or he real human male,
0: and in fact, we see it with a with a not human but a humanoid character in um the episode counterpoint, of course, which is all about that kind of will she trust, will she give her heart in a sense to this man who she 's obviously attracted to, does he really love her, or you, you know at least you know is it, it, are his feelings for her sincere, whatever they are, or is he just playing her, and are they both playing each other, and there 's that kind of element of exactly that kind of trust. Um, and ultimately in that episode, she is, you, you know, she's not faking it. She is kind of falling in love with this guy. But at the same time, she is shrewd enough to protect not only herself, but also her crew and everyone to to not allow that, not allow herself to be sort of deceived by him in a sense, to to keep her guard up. And I, I love that episode. I, I mean, we've talked about it before in a sort of different context, but I think it's very interesting the way that she's able to kind of, emotionally commit to a certain extent but without really making herself vulnerable while kind of protecting herself and her crew and so on Uh, and the way she handles that is quite impressive in a way but you're right there is that kind of anxiety around the female character is it genuine whereas Odysseus I don't think Odysseus is ever going to question. I mean, wherever Odysseus goes, women seem to fall in love with him. That seems to just—and not just women, <laughs> goddesses, any—you know, any, a, any female entity that he encounters. He's so, he so crafty. Is the, he, he, well, he's the, he's the Captain Kirk of of you know <laughs> of the ancient world, isn't he? You know, women just throw themselves at his feet. Um, so, you know, I, I, why would he ever question it? It, it sort of seems it it would almost it it seems sort of totally unnecessary uh in a way and i, and I think with zora and craft it's more i don't think we we do ever question it because it seems i don't know she, as, as much as she hasn't been quite honest with him to begin with and as much as there is maybe this sense of you know is she keeping him there and she's trying to make him happy and kind of you know he's he said to her look you've got this shuttle why don't you give him the shuttle and so on so there there is she obviously does there is sort of the option of her letting him go and she's kind of choosing not to at the same time i think we you know in terms of her connection to him there's no question that that it's genuine you know we see her shed that tear we, we we you know it's it's kind of her the the story of of calypso the episode is really her emotional journey more than his in some ways i mean it's 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 not the case that he's the protagonist and she's this kind of antagonist or whatever it's much more you know it's sort of about the two of them but i feel in some ways it's it's more about her than it is about him almost and of course you know arguably since it's a discovery short trek you know, she is Discovery. She she Discovery is the main character in that episode, not Craft, arguably.
1: So moving on now to talk a little bit about the future, do we feel that there's a future for Kraft or Zora? Like is there more stories that could be told about them? The actual writer of this episode, um Chabon, is Chabon? Shabon? Chabon, Sh- Shabon, I think. Shabon. Sorry, Shabon. He's quoted as saying, I would love it, he said. I tell you I would love to do it tell the whole odyssey I would like to just take craft and just retell the story of Odysseus wanderings and the war he fought in and everything that befell Odysseus and try to find how he would do that in a very Trek kind of context Mm. he also says what if someday Zora goes on to decide to abandon her orders to go out to go forth into the into the universe on her own as a ship he says I could imagine someday if she sort of spreads her gospel of ships being people then you could have an entire race of sentient starships who have their own culture and their own Rights, and he said, wow. this is, "He said, I don't know. This is just me. It's like
0: proper M. Banks territory, there. I think. So, you know, what do you think? Started. Do you think
1: there's a, a future, well,
0: or I, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. He says he'd like to tell the story of the Odyssey because." Of course, the story of the Odyssey, the, the the story of the Odyssey, the kind of interlude with Calypso is almost towards the end. I mean, it's after Odysseus has lost his entire crew. It's after everything kind of, mo- most of the things that are going to happen to him have happened to him. Most of the adventures have already happened. So in a sense, what he's saying is he, if he wants to talk about the war that Craft is fighting and how he's got to that point, that's almost kind of... Go- that's almost like a prequel rather than a continuation, in a sense, of the story. And there's also this kind of fascinating issue about, you know, what is the war that he's fighting? I mean, this is the furthest forward uh, in Star Trek that we've ever been, I think, this kind of thousand years into the future. And it's a kind of tiny glimpse. And obviously, there is kind of huge continuity questions about, you-, you know, is this the future of the Star Trek universe? And what does it mean? And there's also this kind of hint, which I think Michael Shabon has confirmed that this was his intention, that, you know, Kraft is fighting a war against the Federation, the, the Vidreish, which is this kind of corruption of the, the, of the Federation. That's what they've become known as, who are the ones who've hoarded all this kind of earth culture, who are the ones who, you know, whose escape pod stolen. You know, we we're, we're seeing things from the perspective of a guy who's actually fighting them they're his enemies and you know what is this situation why are there humans fighting the federation in the future uh you, you know and people that we can be sympathetic to and so on why has the federation become unknowable to the extent that its very name has been corrupted into kind of nonsense you know it sounds Vidreish sounds like this kind of sinister alien species of, of kind of monsters or something and yet this is the federation that we believe is the kind of represents all that's good and noble and and, you know, forward thinking about the Star Trek universe and so on. So there's this kind of quite dark sort of element there in the story somehow. And I, I don't know, I, I sort of feel like it works well as a short story. I mean I I kind of felt like when they announced they were doing these short tracks, they were doing these short stories, I I thought it was quite an interesting decision for Star Trek because it is quite a new direction. I like the fact that they're not, it's not like they're mini episodes. You know, some series, I think Battlestar Galactica, for example, used to drop mini webisodes in between seasons and they would tell a sort of slightly ropey, fractured story in between these like five or 10 minute segments or whatever, or or maybe they were like two minute segments, I can't remember. But, um, you know, in this case, they, they are choosing to craft, for want of a better word, these perfect little stories now i i think this is a fantastic short story and i suppose a short story is different from a novel uh, a short film is different from a film. It is a very different kind of format. And I think it's nice that they're using this opportunity to tell these stories. And also, you know, people have been saying for years, oh, Star Trek should do an anthology show. We want a show where each season is a different ship and a different story. Uh, we want to keep jumping around. You know, we we want it to be in this time frame, this time, and in this time frame, the next. Well, they're almost allowing themselves to do an anthology show with these short tracks by telling these very self-contained little sort of pieces. I mean there's a big question i suppose in terms of the continuity they've set up a pretty big piece of information that you know discovery is not going to get blown up by whatever crisis appears to be uh, affecting the ship at any time it's not going to you know we know it's going to survive a thousand years into the future presumably uh we don't know how it's going to get there we don't know whether that's something we're going to see you know are we going to see on screen at some point the crew abandoning the ship and that this has been a sort of tease to set something up Or is this just so far in the future and so kind of detached that it can exist outside of the, you know, we don't really need to ever find out how this story came into being. It can kind of be its own little perfect thing. Part of me sort of feels like the more they try to tie into it, the more they try to sort of bring this into the scope of the main story of the show, that they might start taking away from it somehow. I quite like the fact that it's this kind of self-contained short form. I don't know about you. I mean, we've seen three of these short treks now. What do, what do you think about them you know, as a kind of form in themselves? Because obviously they've done quite different things with the three of them, but they are a new departure for Star Trek, really, this idea of doing these, these short stories. Interestingly, coming, you know, fairly hot on the heels of the whole issue about the fan films and this idea the fan films are only allowed to be whatever it is, 15 minutes. And it's almost like they're kind of proving with these films, look, you can do something really good in 15 minutes that you know don't get complaining to us about Axanar don't keep telling us you need you know 45 minutes or an hour and a half or whatever uh take your 15 minutes and do, you know do something like this if you if you think you can and there's sort of almost throwing down the gauntlet and saying look we can we can really make this format work for us in an interesting kind of creatively interesting way
1: yeah I think it's great I think it's great that they're doing the short tracks I think short star trek films are a great way to explore lots of different ideas i think the first one obviously had like an environmental message the second one you know is linked to past culture to the nature of uh, of stories surviving uh the culture in which they originated in and the society in which they originated in there's something kind of epic about the second one (laughs) Um, no pun no pun intended and I love I love the third one because it shines light onto a character who was new for the Star Trek universe with Discovery and also is rather mysterious. We don't know much about Saru's uh, people, about the Kelpians, and so it was nice to see a little bit of um, footage of his planet, home planet and all that kind of thing. Mm. But I agree with you. I don't think they should use these short films – to explain backstory Mm. or to link canon or to fill in gaps because there's something wonderful about not having everything explained. And part of that is because you want the fans and the audience to be able to use their own imagination when watching the show, you know, because if they're they're using their imagination uh, when they're engaged with Star Trek, then they're part of the storytelling you know they're part of the of the franchise they're involved it's a much more reciprocal relationship with the shows with the with the fiction with the with the stories than if they're just passively watching and everything's explained for them and also you you want people coming back for more and people come back for more when there's gaps in the storytelling and I wouldn't call this gaps, unnecessarily. It's just that you're not showing everything. You know, it's not like the the writers have deliberately, accidentally left something out, or, or they haven't deliberately. They've accidentally left something out. It's more that you don't know everything about all characters, or, or you don't know everything about all history. Uh, and I think perhaps maybe certain parts of the fandom really enjoy having all the canon and all the sort of timeline of events and the Star Trek universe explained for them. Or they like figuring it out themselves. But also there is something wonderful about like the unknown parts of the franchise. I mean that's kind of what Star Trek's about, is to go out and seek unknown, you know, worlds and make new discoveries and meet new aliens and mm. Sort of, I sort of feel like the fans are doing that when they're exploring the whole universe of Star Trek themselves with the with the stories. So to have everything laid out for you on screen is a bit. Well, I, I just, I just don't think it's very clever writing.
0: And I suppose the the danger is. I mean, I liked the Saru backstory episode the brightest star i thought that worked well because it was it worked well as a sort of self-contained story in its own right and yes it is sort of it could have been a flashback in another episode almost like divided up into chunks is is probably how star trek would have done it in the past and in a sense that does kind of fill a gap it does fill us in on something that's been hovering over season one you know yeah but they don't explain everything though but but you're right they you're right they don't really explain everything there's a lot of mystery in that in itself but i suppose my my I would feel concerned if the short treks were just being used to kind of plug uh, gaps in continuity or to kind of provide helpful backstory so that we can understand the real story in the show. I think it's good that they're doing something other than that. And I I think what they managed to do, you know, with these, we've seen three out of four of them. Who knows what the, I mean, Harry Mudd is not my favourite character. (laughs) My expectations are not huge for the fourth one, but we'll see. Maybe I'll be surprised by it. But all three of these ones we've seen so far... You, you know, they've they've worked very well as a story, as a kind of piece of art in their own right, really. I mean, you know, they've made you laugh, they've made you cry, they've kind of, they managed to hit all the notes in that smaller form. So they're kind of resolutely refusing to say, okay, this is just a, a little morsel. You know, this is this is a perfectly, a small but a kind of perfectly crafted thing in its own right. And certainly I, I think with Calypso more so than, than any of them, there's this sense that, you, you know, this is a very... Intricate, detailed, sort of dense, rich piece of work that is being presented. It's not just something kind of tossed off to fill a gap a in the cbs all access subscription schedule and b in the kind of production schedule and being done on the cheap i mean in a sense they are a bit like sort of bottle episodes or whatever you know you have these stories that feature one or two actors that feature uh existing standing sets i know that's not true with the saru one necessarily but you know certainly the first of the short tracks, they're like you can see they're they're consciously cheap to produce as well as being short but at the same time as with a lot of star trek's bottle shows i guess those kind of practical constraints may lead to quite creative you know brilliant uh work and i think i think so far they've all been uh fantastic i've I've really enjoyed them i mean i hope we start seeing more of them um and also particularly this one i I do think that there's something you, you know maybe you can tell that this kind of heavyweight Pulitzer Prize winning writer has kind of brought his talents to bear on it. Because there's a lot in there. There's a lot of kind of uh work gone into that script. And it kind of, you know, in fifteen minutes it, it feels like an episode that has a lot to say for itself.
1: Yeah, and it's been a while since they've used such a renowned writer, hasn't there? Because I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying obviously the writers of all the Star Trek series aren't accomplished, and of course, they all are. And it's great also to have um, less well known writers also working on on the show, especially to give the chance to um, have more diverse voices being heard. But when was the last time they used the Pulitzer Prize winner?
0: Well, exactly. Right.
1: I, I mean, like the you, original series or something, yeah, right? So.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I suppose we had it with the original series. We had these kind of sci-fi heavyweights, uh, you know, people like Harlan Ellison, for example, uh, you know, being brought in and asked to contribute. But I guess I think you're right. You know, from next gen onwards, it was very much. Yeah, you might have a sort of experienced showrunner who, you know, had, had done a fair bit of TV before. But actually, a lot of the writers, they were bringing in these kind of really young Uh, fresh, new writers with not much experience. You know, people like, I don't know, Brannan Braga or, you you know, these kind of young guys, and then they kind of worked their way up and they ended up in these sort of positions of responsibility. But Star Trek was really their kind of um, apprenticeship almost. And I think there was that sense of like, yeah, we'll pull in the writer that, you know, they're these young guys, they're good, they're full of ideas, they work hard. That was the kind of model, uh, partly, I suppose, for bashing out this quantity of material that was necessary for those shows in the 90s you know you needed a lot of people you needed people who could work fast uh, who had that kind of energy and so on there wasn't generally that sense like you had with the original series of you know can we can we entice this kind of uh, this great genius to come a- and, and work on Star Trek this week and kind of contribute something um, and I think it's really interesting that with Michael Chabon you know they've managed to do that and of course we know he's working on the Picard series and for me that's a real uh, as much as, you know, a lot of people say Kirsten Bayer working on the Picard series is a really good sign. The fact that the person who wrote this episode, Calypso, is working on the Picard series is definitely a good sign, I think, because, you know, this is the opposite of the kind of. Occasionally with Star Trek, we've had slightly lazy episodes, slightly lazy writing. This, some of the f- faults that we maybe find with the writers of Star Trek in the past have been uh, along those lines. This is absolutely someone who you don't get the impression he's going to phone his episodes in. Do you know what I mean? You get the impression he's going to be really thinking about them and there's going to be something kind of meaty there. And, you know, ultimately that's what we want. You know, we, 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 we don't just want disposable weekly entertainment. We do want stories that we can talk about, you know, 10, 20, 50 years later stories that we can, you know, do a podcast about. I mean, we haven't covered a lot about discovery typically on primitive culture, but this was an episode where it just sort of screamed out uh, for us to tackle it because there's, so much going on there, you know, not just the Odyssey, but also, as you said, funny face and also, and, and, you know, Betty Boop. I mean, we haven't got a huge amount to say about Betty Boop. Uh, maybe, you know, our, our listeners will chime in with their theories on how exactly Betty Boop relates to this story. But I mean, there is this one interesting question. I think when I looked up Betty Boop and the, particularly the specific Betty Boop cartoon that is played in the episode Calypso, it's, it's the Betty Boop Snow White, which you can watch online. It's about seven or eight minutes. It's very short. It is a very creative. I mean, I find those cartoons weird. I used to, I feel like they were on TV when I was a kid. I I, I was sort of vaguely familiar with her as a, as a, cartoon character growing up though i hadn't really thought about her for many years um but they are they're quite surreal they're quite artistically inventive there's a lot of kind of transformation i mean you were talking about cersei who you know transforms odysseus's men into pigs uh, all the human characters are constantly transforming into animals into other things they're, they're very you know compared even say to disney or something like that they're very kind of visually madcap kind of surreal kind of weird uh cartoons. And and, and the Snow White one, the thing that interested me about this was that I read, I think in the 90s, it was one of these films that was selected for preservation by the Library of Congress. And you get this with various kind of art forms that, you know, certain works of art are considered to be culturally significant and they're going to be preserved. And I I don't know in practice what that means. The film stock is kind of kept in some vault somewhere or, you you know, it's, it's protected from degradation or whatever. I don't really know what that means in the kind of digital era when everything's been scanned and kind of duplicated a million times anyway. But it kind of made me think about this question, you know, Zora says she's got 5,000 films in her kind of archive Kraft said there were 800 films on his shuttlecraft that he could watch but he ended up watching betty boop over and over again because he couldn't work out how to change the channel effectively you know there is this sort of question especially since there's this idea of you know the kind of corrupted federation of the future the vidrayish and these are their kind of cultural artifacts these are the things from the long ago as they're described as what is it that gets passed down why is it that we have the odyssey passed down and not other texts uh you know from the classical period, there's a lot of literature that that is lost, right? I mean, we get kind of a, a fraction of what there was has survived. Um And I suppose we've got this sense, you know, going into the future, a thousand years, I mean, more for, you know, th- whatever it is, 1,300 or something years into the future, how much of our culture has survived and made it through. And I guess Star Trek typically you know, if you think about like movie night on Enterprise or the kind of stuff we see on Voyager with all this kind of schlocky entertainment and so on, it sort of feels like all of all of Earth culture is kind of there and available for anyone who's interested to go digging around and, and pull out some old um you know films or whatever and kind of of get themselves immersed in it in this story because it's so far in the future there's it sort of feels more there's this sense of these slightly random relics that are almost you know they're so much from another time they're kind of hard to understand i mean Kraft sort of struggles to understand funny face in some way zora has to kind of explain it to him there is that kind of sense of the disconnection between people living in that time period and this kind of ancient culture and how how much of it has survived and how do they kind of interpret it? And I think that is kind of interesting, this idea of, you know, what are we consciously trying to preserve of our own culture? Why have we decided that the 1933 Betty Boop Snow White cartoon is, is something that we kind of want to go forward in time, you know, to be protected in that sense, whereas, you know, 100 other films made that year we're not that bothered about. Uh, you know, who is it who's sort of making those decisions? And, and is that how culture survives through these kind of conscious acts of protecting and preserving it?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, there's this idea that stories or cultural artefacts survive, like, the decline or the destruction of the society or culture that they originated in, mm-hmm. whether that's through some sort of intentional means or whether it's just accidental. And sometimes these things have... Sub- survived because it's been so long like it, you know ancient Greece didn't really fall apart in some awful i don't know massive destru- destructive well there was lots of wars but it it didn't you know what i mean like it wasn't it wasn't like there was some horrific natural disaster or something and that's why we only have the odyssey and the iliad out of all the epic poems that i'm sure mm. were were written um it's more that it's so long ago like the, what what actually survived Ancient Greece, you know, is it minimal because it was it was just such a long time ago? But mm-hmm. also, there I mean, there were there were other things that did happen. Like there was a massive fire in Alexandria, um, many 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 years later, at the sort of rise of Christianity. Fire, the basic, the fire destroyed the library, and the mm-hmm. library contained lots and lots of ancient Greek plays, like from Sophocles and Euripides and Aeschylus and a lot of the sort of literary, classical, heritage. So there have there, there are events that happen that destroy stuff, but it's but there's also so it's we also better just hope that of, the
0: Library of Congress have got some kind of backup system in case you know the same thing happens again. Otherwise, you know, Kraft might not be watching Betty Boop uh, a yeah, thousand odd years or the in the future. May be
1: watching something else. <laughs> 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 I mean, but part of it is that it's the passage of time. You know, some of the stuff becomes very confusing for us because we're only seeing a small snapshot of that culture. Like, Betty Boop is a small snapshot of, like, that time period, Mm -hmm. of the visual culture that people are watching during that time period. I mean, Funny Face is one of, what, like, hundreds of musicals that were probably produced in the 50s? So part of it is that we're only watching a small part of that culture. It's like It's like you're looking through a tiny, tiny little window on a giant and you're seeing part of a giant picture you know because you're only getting a glimpse of it Mm. but also there is something universal in stories that are preserved so Mm. there is something universal in the the epic poems of the iliad and the odyssey there Mm -hmm. are universal themes and I would argue that I can't believe I'm saying this because I actually think Funny Face is a pretty bad musical, but there is something universal about that scene, at least, in Funny mm-hmm. Funny Face. So I do wonder if sometimes stories do survive, sometimes by accident, sometimes because they're deliberately preserved by people and they're deliberately curated, but sometimes because they just appeal to generation after generation of human beings who... Mm-hmm say, yeah, I felt that. I felt that emotion that that is described in that story. Or, yeah, I love the heroic themes of this poem. Or I love that part of that movie because that's how I feel. Or, do you know what I mean? Like, I I wonder if there's sometimes there's universal themes that we can all identify with or that we can all tap into. And I wonder if those stories get preserved more than anything else because they appeal to just one generation after another
0: and Odysseus is a very human character I'd say I mean as much as he is this kind of cunning he, he is kind of he's very much like a Starfleet captain in a way he's he's very smart he thinks on his feet he's kind of always one step ahead of the game uh you, you, you know he's kind of good at kind of plotting his way out of a seemingly an apparent no-win scenario, basically. I mean, like with the Cyclops, for example, he he and his men are captured by the Cyclops. He has to devise a a plan, quite an elaborate plan, uh, which again turns on this kind of idea of concealing his name. He says that his name is nobody. Uh, So he has to sort of come up with a, a, a scheme to kind of brave his way out of it. But at the same time, he's not... I mean, even compared to, say, I suppose, a lot of the characters in the Iliad, you've got a lot of these characters like Achilles or Ajax or so on, who are these kind of almost slightly kind of superhuman humans. Odysseus is the more relatable human, I think. Do you know what I mean? Like he feels more like a kind of, I mean, aside from the fact that all these women are throwing themselves at his feet and so on, and he's, he's brilliantly smart and cunning and all this stuff, but he he has quite some normal reactions to things. He misses his wife. He feels the losses in quite a kind of normal way. He's got great ingenuity, but at the same time, he's got a kind of vulnerability as well. he He sort of feels like he feels like a more modern character somehow. Do you, do you know well, what he, I mean? Does he that is.
1: Sense he is. He is. Like I would. I. I mean, anyone who's listening to this podcast and is interested in um, Greek heroes and the idea of ancient Greek heroes uh, should go and listen to one of the first primitive culture podcasts that we did together, where we mm. talked about uh, the nature of of her- the heroic epic and Star Trek. Odysseus is actually a more modern man, so there's a, there's a definite difference between the heroes of the Iliad, which is the poem that was composed before the Odyssey earlier, and we don 't really know when these were composed, so it could have been composed as many as tens tens decades of, of years before um, the odyssey mm-hmm. and then obviously the hero Odysseus, the men of the odyssey there's a definite difference between what they uh, are showing as being exemplary heroic I- ideals mm. so in the iliad it's I, it's achilles and agamemnon you know these strong brute force kind of heroes who are great fighters who want heroic death i mean their aim is to die heroically in battle and to live a life um where they're sung um by by bards and poets you know where they're basically their their story lives on in infamy for generations afterwards and in the odyssey it's a very different situation it's a much more communal story like uh, odysseus has to make his way back to ithaca so he can run his kingdom so he can protect his family it's a much more communal idea and actually odysseus meets achilles in the afterlife and you know he's he's supposed to have had this heroic death on the battlefield in Troy and now he's this former shade of himself in this ghost in the afterworld and he sort of regrets the way that he died you know he's he's very negative so it's this idea rather than an individualistic type of heroism we've got this more sort of intelligent cerebral type of hero who's more communal, more social in a way. Do you know what I mean? And that actually fit in with like the the Athenian city state at the time um when people would have been reading or or many, 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 many years later where people would have been reading or, or talking about the Odyssey. The Athenian city state, which so ancient Athens basically, whose patron goddess was Athena, which is the patron goddess of Odysseus, it was very much about being a good citizen about voting, about um, supporting your community, about using your mind, a bit being cerebral, and of course they all went off and fought. You know, in the Peloponnesian War and the Persian War, but it was less about individualistic freedom. It was less about being heroic through brute force. So he is a very different hero, and it's it's not an accident. You're not. Um, like imagining that it's, it's definitely deliberately different. He's and in, in, in Iliad, his craftiness and his wiliness and his, the way he, the way he fights, you know, he creeps up on the enemy at night on their camp and, and slaughters them in their sleep, you know, rather than fighting out in the open, um, like in a duel, like Achilles and Hector, it's, it's seen as, it's seen as rather distasteful. Like Odysseus isn't quite as heroic in the Iliad as he is in the Odyssey. Right. So the nature of what made a hero changed in the time that the two poems were being composed.
0: Do you mean he's not as heroic in the Odyssey as he was in the...
1: No, he's not as heroic in the Iliad.
0: Oh, I see. Right. Okay.
1: No, he's not. He's not considered as, her- as heroic in the He's Iliad not
0: seen because- as a hero. In the- yes, okay, I see what you mean. Sorry. No, he's a
1: hero. He's a hero, but he's not seen as heroic.
0: He's not the hero. Um, as- that's the thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he's not. But he's also not seen as heroic because of the nature of who he is as a person. The fact that he is right. yeah. A liar yeah. and a- and he's he's a deceiver and he's crafty. He thinks more with his mind and less with his sword, and. Yeah and and the hero of the of the Iliad is, is Achilles I mean Achilles is this mm. terrible 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 hero. his actions lead to the deaths of you know of hundreds of, of Greek Greek men and he has pride and the whole of the Iliad is about Achilles's Achilles pride and the whole of the Odyssey is about Odysseus' craftiness basically but by his intellect he also has pride and he I mean one of the reasons why he ends up shipwrecked is because he, basically calls to the Cyclops um like you know ha 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 I beat you my name's Odysseus and so so then obviously the Cyclops knows to pray to Poseidon his father and blah 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 blah. anyway (laughs) I won't go on about it too much but the point is that the actual nature of what was supposed what the nature of an epic hero changed from the Iliad to the Odyssey so you have two very different types of heroes considering
0: how many goddesses and, and so on are throwing themselves at his feet Odysseus seems to make enemies of rather a lot of gods at the same time doesn't he, <laughs> he kind of goes around you know uh, really rubbing a lot of them up the wrong way and and, and you know it seems how people have, have got it in for him but I suppose there is this kind of question more broadly wh- whenever you're looking at these kind of relics of a different age of a different culture in a sense these kind of um, you know artworks or, or, or other kind of cultural relics as much as they resonate and they survive because they speak to these these kind of universal human truths whether that's about love or you, you know whatever it is that speaks to people many centuries uh sometimes millennia down the line they do also encode these kind of elements of their own time you, you know to the extent they can feel kind of dated their values and their outlook and their kind of expectations of what we admire in other people what we expect about other people can seem quite dated so you know even in the example of this story uh which is very much about these kind of cultural touchstones being handed down. I mean, the episode is named after the Odyssey. The episode takes its kind of structure, its story in a sense from an instant in the Odyssey, but it also gives us these two other sort of cultural reference points uh, from within the 20th century and from within cinema. But both of them that sort of are sort of self-consciously quite dated in a sense and that encode kind of ideas about their time uh particularly i mean you were talking about ideas about femininity in in funny face and some of the the elements of that film that maybe seem quite dated but i mean so betty boop is even more so is, is almost an alien artifact to us now because it seems so dated and it's kind of the performance of sexuality and that is so much of its era i mean to the extent that betty boop apparently only i think a year or so after that film was made uh, a law was passed a kind of censorship law in america that meant that the kind of sexuality of betty boop had to be toned down and changed quite dramatically uh, so it even became the kind of cultural norm partly through censorship changed uh, and is one reason that that character seems very sort of surprising and so on but but it's very much as you said, a kind of product of its time. As, of course, is all art, you know, as uh, is Star Trek. I mean, when we talk about the original series and the kind of production uh setting in the 1960s and the mini skirts and the kind of certain ideas that were around. And, you know, maybe there are occasionally moments where we think, oh, you know, that's a bit sexist or that's a bit whatever. But, you know, that was that was kind of of its time. That was typically the time. And then you come to 90s Star Trek. And, you know, when we were growing up watching it, it felt very current and real and kind of contemporary and, and sort of accurate. Looking back on it, you can see some of these things, you know, you you have the benefit of hindsight, you have the benefit of a bit of detachment and you can can say, wow, that was a really, (laughs) you know, that was really of its time as well. I mean, you know, early next gen, the music, things like that. They, they they feel very dated to us going back to it now. That's not to say we can't enjoy it, but at the same time, we are more aware of that. And in time, I guess Discovery will as well. I mean, you know, th- this is absolutely bang up to date, you know, literally a, a month or two old, uh, sort of 2018 Star Trek. It feels very modern, very classy, very kind of sophisticated and and so on. We're, we're not, there's, there's no barrier in it that's, that says this feels too trendy or too kind of of the, you know, that of 2018 somehow about it. We, we kind of almost can't see it when we're living through it. But, you know, in 20, 30, 50 years' time, people looking back on that episode will be able to kind of have that different lens on it. They'll have that that um, displacement in a sense that any cultural artefacts that survive, they do carry with them a part of the time that they were created in.
1: So the question is, will Star Trek survive a thousand years?
0: Oh, yeah, easy. <laughs> It survived the first 50. That's that's the biggest hurdle to get over, I think.
1: Or, or will we be watching it in a different way? Like, will we be watching it in we hologram form?
0: Definitely be watching it in holograms, yeah. <laughs> so, someone's, you know, that's the next remastering job. I mean, once they've gone through DS9 and Voyager and ma- managed to do those remasters, then, you know, turning them into holograms, that'll be child's play.
1: And they can start on the holograms. <laughs> or
0: just, just skip skip the HD and <laughs> go to. But you don't want you don't want fuzzy holograms. holograms. It, it, fuzzy fuzzy holograms are going to be, you know, frustrating for everyone, aren't they? So you maybe t- you better need to get the picture reality. quality first. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Maybe holodeck style, that kind of thing. Well, we've got that to look forward to. Lucky us.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So it's been really interesting taking a look at Calypso, the Odyssey, Funny Face. Betty Boop, short films in the world of Star Trek. But this is not the only subject that has been discussed on the network this week, so here's a look at what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on
0: Trek.fm,
1: Literary Treks. I just want to sing after every time I hear the
0: title of this book, I want to sing A Time for War, A Time (laughs) for Peace.
1: Funny, funny story. When when this was being
0: pitched at the sales con uh, in the sales meeting uh, at Simon and Schuster, somebody on the sales force was was worried that we that they'd have to get permission to use the titles
1: because because it's a song by the Birds and 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 John Ordover, the editor, had to gently point out that it was actually from the Bible and therefore kind of public <laughs> melodic tricks. You know, I suppose as being an actor, you know, I just was really kind of feeling into Clive's character okay. and, and trying to express the emotion of what I felt like he was going through on the sarangi. Mm-hmm. So then it became much more of a personal individual character. It was how I experienced doing it. The
0: 602 Club but i look at this film as being almost three maybe four different films because when we're in krypton krypton it's very sci-fi oh, mean, uh, excuse Kryptin. me krypton you, yeah you mean we, krypton. We were on krypton i'm yeah. sorry Marlon. <laughs> krypton <laughs> so when we're on krypton krypton uh it's very much a science fiction movie next thing all of a sudden we have kal-el come to earth and now it feels very norman rockwell I mean, it's almost like, I mean, totally different from what we just saw on Krypton or Krypton to the journey Brace for impact. Brace for impact. <laughs> yes. Okay. If uh, I, I, am going to make a commitment to myself right now. If I am ever perishing in a plane crash, I am going to say brace for impact right before I die to everyone on the plane. I will brace somehow for impact. hear it
1: across the miles.
0: It'll be very dramatic you know, with some dramatic theme music playing, hopefully, just like we have in Voyager here this episode.
1: And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published.
0: And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link.
1: We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel. B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up.
0: If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at Trek FM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM.
1: Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at Clara Jean MC. If you'd like to
0: help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details.
1: Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patron's website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash
0: We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at, at AJBlackWriter and online, hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from The X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at, at MissAmyNelson. You're
1: blended all right.